Hi, and welcome to Contourcast. My name's Kat Boyd, and I'm joined as ever with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? I need to start having something better to say at this point. I am absolutely <laughs> sick of my own intro line. Yeah. You How's it going? How's it going? Every single time. Yeah, we need to work on that. There's, there's plenty of room for improvement on this pod, always. Um, we are joined tonight with another very special guest. We have Kevin McKenna on the pod. Hi, Kevin. Hiya. <laughs> Hiya. How are you? <laughs> Fine, thanks. Um, Kevin's a, a journalist. Um, we were debating about whether to introduce Kevin as a political commentator, as seems to be the fashionable trend at the moment. Um, everyone seems to be a political commentator. David, even when you were on Russia today, I think you got introduced as a political commentator, right? A run lower political analyst <laughs> which is the lowliest you know on russia today everyone's a political analyst that usually means crazy person with a blog <laughs> you know? that's what i was gonna say you've got in order to be a real political analyst you have to have a blog you have to be a real crank yeah um so yeah political analyst it's like uh, it's like a bullet to the heart that one should describe <laughs> as a political analyst political analysts always it always throws up images of people who work on uh, presidential campaigns, re-election campaigns. And very American. Is, yeah. yeah. I mean, cool. don't get me started on Americanisms in Scotland. We had a whole uh, a whole episode about uh, how much we hate the intrusion of American political culture into Scotland. It's, uh, it's one of my pet hates. You don't usually think of Russia today as a great carrier of Americanisms, but it actually is. It's a very kind of like Fox News type show when you watch it. Um, I mean, we don't really have a, a, a Scottish equivalent of Fox News, do we? Um, the, um, the, new, the New Times, Sunday Times, uh, digital channel. <laughs> yeah, so this, this is, uh, what's his name, Andrew Neil, uh, is setting up a new, because he got booted out of the BBC. Yeah. I don't really know what happened there, um, but he's obviously setting up this American-style adversarial, you know, TV, kind of cable TV-type format, because traditionally in America, it's not the newspapers that are hyper-partisan, it's the TV channels that are hyper-partisan. And he used to be a great critic of that model until someone presumably gave him quite a lot of money to head up, <laughs> um, yeah, a new kind of Fox News type right wing cable program. He also set up Sky News, so he, he knows what he's doing. So I think um, he'll make a good job of it. Yeah. Actually, <clears throat> um, I think he's got a vendetta. Like he he wants revenge on the BBC, which usually drives him so like. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'll, I'll maybe try and become a political analyst on that. <laughs> um, yeah, it makes me think of the like Berlusconi model of politics because that's obviously that's what he did, right? He was a um, cable TV guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's where he really exposed himself to the population. Why did I use that phrase? <laughs> <laughs> As the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, cat, dial it back. Bunga bunga life and so on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but it was Boris, all Boris Johnson's been a couple of those parties, was it not? 
<laughs> has he actually been as a or is, that might be actionable I mean, he does seem the type. Uh, that's probably actionable as well. Like, scrap it. <laughs> um, but, Kevin, you wrote a, an article today for your column in The National, in which I suppose The National is a bit like in that sort of uh, propagandist media wing, isn't it? Oh, um, <clears throat> you probably can't see. Well, it's interesting because I, I remember um, on the day that it launched, 2015, I think, or the evening that it launched, STV did an extended sort of slot on their, uh, their, their nighttime um, news program for. Uh, <laughs> political analysts and commentators <laughs> like me and there were two or three other uh, journalists and we were all being asked uh, about what we thought of it was there room in the market for it um could it possibly survive given that you know because of the falling circulations of newspapers um and also the the, the very valid question about bias you know could it could it possibly get away with being nakedly and unashamedly pro-independence. Um, my point was that uh, it's important to separate being pro-independence from pro-SNP. Mm. And the, the newspapers, you know, the Nationals bias in favour of independence was no greater um, than the Daily Mail's bias towards the union, um, right-wing politics, and during Brexit, um, it probably wasn't any greater than the bias towards um, leaving Europe by more than half of the English newspaper titles. Um, and, I, and I find, I, quite often I, I find myself arguing with people who, who talk about the press in very lofty terms and they put it in a pedestal and, and, and they talk about the press, um, you know, need, basically brandishing the sword of truth at the coalface of truth, um, exposing lies and being balanced and fair. And the, the press in the UK has never been balanced and it's never been fair because the pattern of ownership of the press um, it basically resides in no more than half a dozen uh, very rich, very white um, old men, usually from Britain, occasionally from overseas. And, and that's been the case for hundreds of years. And in Scotland, it's probably, you know, the kind of the attempt at balance and the attempt at uh, being fair is probably more pronounced in Scotland than it is in England, where, where I think, with the possible exception of the Guardian and obviously the Mirror, all of the great newspapers, the oldest newspapers, they've never been, they've never even pretended to be balanced. I think, I think there's, there's obviously a, an onus to try and be accurate. So even if you're shafting your opponents, get the facts right. You know, you criticise them on that. But 
but this this concept of the British press and the Scottish press um, being required to be balanced and fair um, and, and reasonable is, it, it never existed. Um, and I suppose the alternative is, well, you know, do you have state-run newspapers that, that require to be balanced? But if you have state-run newspapers, what's the point? What's, what's the point having a state-run newspaper? Because anything you say about the government of the day, and we're seeing this in various debates about the BBC, um, are, are just going to be worthless, I suppose. So whether you like it or not, the press is biased. It's not balanced. It doesn't have to be. And as long as you know, as long as you know that the, the uh, political proclivities of the paper that you're buying, then you use your skill, judgment, discrimination, um, instincts to separate or, or to, to bear these things in mind when when you're reading what they're telling you. I think that this is this is why the debate about the BBC within the pro-independence movement I think has to be like I approach it with a degree of caution because the toxic bias of privately owned media is like I do it obviously does have a huge impact on pol people's political consciousness but at least I have um I have a degree of autonomy and choosing whether or not to buy the sun say um, but we do expect a degree of impartiality, whether rightly or wrongly, from a state-funded broadcaster. And I remember, um, like, around about 2015, 2016, I think Alex Salmond actually said quite directly that he thought the BBC was partly to blame for the, the loss of the referendum. And I just think that there's a little bit of danger that in a rush, like the kind of pro-independence rush to condemn the BBC is that we forget how grotesque private media can be. And you're right, it's not balanced. Like I remember writing something a few years ago about um, the likelihood or the ratio rather of um, heads of industry, the CBI, private financial interests, private capital interests being interviewed on the economy compared to how often uh, trade union leaders would be interviewed or mm -hmm asked to comment on serious economic matters and I think it's it's huge you know I think it's like 26 27 times more likely that you will hear from a business leader which is kind of one of those phrases that should go in the bin along with the political analyst <laughs> like you don't get you know trade union leaders we don't have industrial correspondence anymore um, but people I think expect more from something like the BBC but then but then you look at the <clears throat> If you look at the um, the annual surveys run by, like the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, various other kind of leftish think tanks, when they 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 come up with sets of indicators to to, to measure um, social um, social progress, I think is that the phrase that they use, and they look at the backgrounds and the education of people in key industries and, and key positions and the private sector and the public sector. And, and you know, the, the BBC, as well, as well as all of our political parties by degrees, the BBC executives are dominated by people who went to private schools 
and thereafter to to Oxford or Cambridge. And and this, you know, that this is true also of the researchers, um, the producers, the people that you don't see in front of camera. And so when they're asked to get three or four talking heads to front up a program, they they go to they go to their own kind. They go to the people that they know, the ones that whose numbers are in their phone book. And and quite often it's it's an unconscious bias because. <clears throat> you know, fast news is breaking, you've got half an hour to put together a programme, right? Tristam, we need three people, you've got half an hour to bring three people, what's he going to do? He's just going to go to his, his iPhone and all the numbers there and, and, and it'll be all Tristam's pals from Oxford and Cambridge, you know, who are now running kind of dot-com companies and, um, and sitting in the boards of banks. Um, and that's, there's, it's just that inbuilt quite often unconscious, but it's still there, uh, bias. And I agree with you about the you know, union leaders and business leaders. There's almost this kind of, this assumption that a business leader knows what he's talking about because he's running a business. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, yeah, but the union leader knows what he's talking about because he's representing the people who actually help this guy make, make his money. And, and is probably more aware of relationships on shop floor, how the money is made, the machinery, the margins, than the so-called business leader stroke entrepreneur. Anyway, I just had yeah. to my chest. <laughs> no, I mean feel free to rant. This is the this is the vibe of the podcast, <laughs> of course. Um do you know I was just thinking there about <clears throat> one of my favorite moments on um I think it was BBC News. Um, and like maybe both of you do or don't remember this, I'm not sure, but it was um, in the 2000s when there was a there was a particular strong and sustained assault from Israel on Palestine, and there was the huge appeal for aid to Gaza, and Tony Benn was on the BBC, and he had been told explicitly, do not mention the like the charitable donation line because we can't guarantee that that money isn't going to naughty terrorists. And I remember Tony Benn just being like, no, I'm going to read it. This is the number. Right. If you phone right. this number, you can donate. And there was just this like real sense of um, like there there was no deference to the BBC or to the media and I think that that's what we lack now is we do actually have a lack of um, <laughs> political commentators <laughs> so do I mean politicians political commentators political analysts or whatever who um, are able to and willing to really like stand up to the almost the stitch up of the establishment in somewhere small like Scotland where there is a strong relationship and maybe like a growing relationship between the media and our own government in Holyrood and I guess that's the that's the kind of one of the points in your article isn't it? Yeah that was that was probably the whole that was probably the the main thrust of your question which I avoided answering and went on a, a rant in lots of different directions um so so I was uh the article was occasioned by the news that Richard Walker, who was the founding editor of The National and, and a very experienced journalist of about 40 years, has worked for most of the main titles in Scotland, um, is throwing his hat into the ring for the, for the SNP, seeking the nomination in Ayr, 
prepared to take on John Scott, who's the, the, the sitting, the, the Tory John Scott sitting M MSP. Um, and and I and I thought, bang, there goes another one. Um, Richard's a very talented journalist. He's currently editing the the uh, Sunday National, and and if he wins, that's another talented, experienced journalist who who has and and you know who has asked questions of the SNP, even though he's obviously very pro independence, and and also over, over the last couple of years. There have been some very, very experienced, very good journalists on the Herald, just to, to quote one paper, who are now who are now sitting in government. Now these journalists had the experience and the, the, the know-how in, in subjects such as health and education to drill into government statements, press releases, and to basically to guide the reader through them and expose maybe some of the inconsistencies and to shine a light into some of the <clears throat> important details that get buried in in 5,000 word policy statements. That's their job. That's what they're good at. They're all now working for the government, you know, holding bags for some minister, crunching numbers and and so just bit by bit, and part of it is due to falling circulation, part of it is due to the changing models of, of newspapers, and part of it is the challenge and the rise of uh, podcasts such as this and blogs, um, uh, where, where people have got far more choice in how they, um, how they obtain their news, how they consume news uh, and comment. But Somebody at the SNP obviously is doing their job right and has seen this coming a few years ago and thought we can actually we can actually exploit this and offer jobs, uh, safe jobs, well pensioned to people who were in newspapers and bit by bit the newspapers, the media becomes less able to or has fewer resources to scrutinise the government. And the government in Scotland needs scrutinised, not least for the fact that by the time by the time the SNP are voted out of Scotland, whether that's as part of the UK, whether it's as an independent Scotland, more around about 25 years will have passed, will have elapsed. I mean, the, the SNP are on course if they aren't already the longest serving government in Western Europe. So, and, and even if you're an SNP supporter, pro-independence, it becomes ever more important to scrutinise what that eternal party of government is doing. And unfortunately, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party at Holyrood seem incapable of, of landing a glove on the SNP. And that's, you know, when that happens, when you weak political oppositions, traditionally the press is supposed to or ought to be um, standing in the gap and scrutinizing and and it's not it's not happening to the extent that it ought to be because of this brain drain this migration of talented experienced journalists into government or worse into assorted lobbying firms who have their connections and you know whose whose networks include the government but that's 
that's an entirely different program and it's so and I'm not going to bore I, you. I think this, this is a really um oh I think this is a really interesting um if I got a wee bit of reverb you end, Kevin. No, it's fine. I think this is a really interesting subject because everyone knows that um the media, the traditional media, the legacy media, whatever you want to call it, is in having this industrial decline, massive industrial decline, um, that's threatening some of the oldest newspaper titles in the world, including some in Scotland, where mm. the media environment is already pretty weak. The newspaper environment is already pretty weak. I mean, uh, when I was growing up, we always got the Herald. And I remember when I was sort of disgusted to learn that it's not even a national newspaper. It's a Glasgow newspaper. Do you know, uh, you know in air, you know, uh, your family get a newspaper, which is a local paper to, to bring you the national news. So it's always had those structural weaknesses, at least in recent decades, but it's totally falling apart uh, under the pressure that's on the global industry. But there is an interesting question about where those people go. Mm. Where, where, do, where does the labour component go when, when the capital's dried up? And the evidence from around the world, in the Western world anyway, is that they go into PR. So in the United States, I think it's been something like 10 years since the number of professional lobbyists and PR workers outgrew the number of existing journalists. Mm. So mm. you had a situation where there were more people spinning the news than writing the news, more people um, trying to deflect investigations than conduct investigations, which is obviously a moment in civil society and, and democracy and so on. There's a really interesting moment, I think, for this in Scotland, which is uh, Murray Foote. Murray Foote, of course, was the author of the famous, infamous bow. Um, he is now working at SNP, you know, HQ as one of their senior communications people. Now, what I'm about to say is pure speculation. This is the sort of quality you get from a political analyst rather than a journalist, right? Um, but I remember a lot of people saying of, of Murray Foote, well, this is it. He's being brought in for independence. He's being brought in because he understands the way the country thinks. That's how he used the genius who came up with the vow because there's this whole mythology that the vow denied us independence, right? I didn't. I, I, you know, it was... It was just another stunt in a long campaign, you know. Um, it didn't, it didn't lose us the referendum, the independence side. Anyway, this maverick genius he got in from the cold, and he is going to create this new independent strategy that appeals to the, the broadest swathes of the country. I always suspected, and I have no reason not to think this, that he was actually brought in to deal with the fallout from the Alex Salmond affair. So, like, you've got this situation where this the mythology of the kind of journalistic cast uh, is being used to cover for the fact that really this is about obscuring the murky business of government, and it's always pretty murky. There are always secrets in powerful places, um, and that's what a lot of, as you say, very trained trained over decades very well networked media workers that's the kind of thing they're going into they're not just trying to promote the public image of a political party or an administration and its policies and all this kind of stuff they're also being brought up brought in to keep secrets yeah i, I would say that's a reasonable analysis and i would also say that your suspicions or your 
your instincts as to the the real reasons Murray Foot was brought in are spot on, bang on the money. Um, people forget that the bow, <laughs> the legendary bow, wasn't worth wasn't worth the price of the cigarette packet on the back of which it was written. Um, it fell apart. It just just reading the genius actually <clears throat> of the bow was nothing to do with the words how it came about. But it was a damn good front page. It was a good design and it was well timed. But the vow itself was just mince, nonsense. Um, and it's interesting you're talking about, I, I saw that survey of the, the quotient of PR. Um, spin doctors, call them what you will, to proper journalists in America. And we're we're kind of approaching and may already have passed that moment in Scotland and, and Richard's Richard's um, nomination for the SNP seemed to be emblematic of that. Um, I, I think that the the um, that there is a changing models of press. Some papers will survive, some won't, um, and people are going elsewhere uh, to consume news, uh, especially venues or locations that are free there's a danger with that though because you get a kind of you know there's a kind of wild west aspect to this there's some very good bloggers and responsible and you can trust them and they're well researched and there are others that aren't and when a blogger uh, blogs something or, or retweet then retweets it and sticks it in facebook it, you know it, be, it begins a kind of um it begins a momentum of its own, and in that momentum, uh, it almost confers its own truth, its own validity, and people get caught up in it. You know, that's a blog. That guy looks as if he knows what he's talking about. He's put it out on Twitter, and it's got several hundred responses, and it's on Facebook. But it hasn't been legal. Um, it doesn't have more than one source, if it even has one source for some of the, for some of the. Um, Facts, some of the numbers it's coming up with, and uh, there's there's a chance it might even be defamatory. But if you're a major political um, presence, or you're a an A-list or a B-list, you're not going to come after a blogger for defamation. But it's still a challenge to newspapers to be creative, to be nimble, and we're far less able to do that when when we lose creative talent to safe jobs in government or safe jobs working for Charlotte Street Partners, for instance, or, or the other lobbying firms who, who, who pray, who kind of gather around Charlotte Street or around Holyrood. That's become one of the, the very few growth industries in 20 years of devolution, that the rise of the, the the rise of the workers in the Matalan suits and their the little rucksacks that they wear and their, you know, their increasingly large smartphones, and they always seem to be scurrying here and there, and then they've got a kind of they've got a sort of kind of haircut. You know, a lot of them have been watching too many American political movies, and there's an air of them doing something that they're, they're not. They're either going somewhere or they're leaving. You never see them. You never see them kind of just standing about reading a newspaper, having a chat. It's phone, going somewhere, 
and it's right, hand signals, two minutes, see you soon, give us a bell. You know, you could do an entire sitcom, you go to the SNP conference and you see these people and it's dismal. I mean, it's just, it's a subspecies. And, but it comes with good money and we're paying them 40, 50, 60 grand basically to carry some minister's bag and come up with some numbers. Um, that's that's one of the few growth industries and the SNP are good at it. They are, and Labour aren't. Labour just, you know, missed the boat in it and they're not getting, you know, also being in government is seductive. You want a career. You're going to, you're going to gravitate towards not just the party in government, but the party looks at it's going to be in government and, and make a difference. Who wants to join the Labour Party? Who wants to join the Tories? If you want a career in politics, you know, interestingly, you get, you know, Kezia Dugdale, who became leader of the Labour Party, she started off her career looking for a job in the back office of the SNP. Kezia wanted into politics. Where does she want? What's the best place to start? We'll start with the SNP. They're going places, they're dynamic and they crunch numbers and they've, 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 um, they've imported fancy uh, digital um, uh, election examination machines well before Labour did. This is a dynamic party. And she gets the, the training, she gets the background, she gets the connections, goes into the Labour Party in a few years, she's the leader of the Labour Party. Nobody wants to start off at the Labour Party at the moment because that's where ideas, creativity, goes to die. It's a graveyard uh, for, for anything approaching creativity, thinking outside the box. You know, it's right, how do we get our own, how do we get our, our old um, places in Lan Lanarkshire and Glasgow back and <clears throat> how many ways can we can we keep saying there will be no second referendum? That's, that's, that's the Labour Party in Scotland summed up. <clears throat> useless, useless. <laughs> Um, I think that the Labour Party's um, press output over the last few weeks has just been multiple press releases about Margaret Ferrier. Like that, that's it. <laughs> Anyone who's on those distribution lists is basically like, this is actually becoming a bit like almost psychosexual now. Like every single press release is about like how Margaret Ferrier must go. And that's it. Like that's all. That's all. <laughs> There's a whole quantum of people out there that think Margaret Ferrier runs the country. I know. The Labour Party's so obsessed with her. I mean, who's this Margaret Ferrier? She must be really important. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of find the Margaret Ferrier thing like slightly hilarious. I, the, the whole, uh, to be honest, I found almost every incident of people breaking the the lockdown the kind of high profile ones is slightly hilarious um but i i also feel like um i i when i see the amount of so for example uh, hum, uh hamza yusuf um tweeted her and said we've been friends for many years however you have that's <laughs> sinister that's sinister. sinister because sinister. I, the most sinister thing is what if that's true the last time I was so disgusted by, by someone's Twitter activity was Kezia Dugdale's dad. 
attacking her. Yeah. Even yeah. All right, that was sick. It's sick, wasn't it? Even if, even if um, all right, Kezia Dugdale. Let's say she's a grifter. You know, as you say, she started off and she just wanted a career. She started off in the SNP, graduated into the Labour, and became leader a few years <laughs> later. Right? It's totally cynical, right? But still, if I, if I'd like to think if I was the dad of a really cynical careerist kid. Regardless of what I thought, I would just be supporting them to the hilt. I just yeah, like that I, I, wonderful yeah, person. I I, I sympathised with her. Yeah, I was I was disgusted. I was sort of like, you know, I, I do think there's a kind of blood thicker thicker than water thing there. I yeah. would keep my disgust inside and outwardly pretend that it was the most noble endeavour in the world. I mean, it's not as if she was joining the Tories or or you know joining up with Nigel Farage. You know. Yeah. I just thought it was such a shame that her dad had become kind of like this kind of cybernet icon for ruining ruining his daughter's life. I know, it was I awful. It, it was totally sick. I think as a general principle, people's parents and children should be kept out of politics. Like I think that I think it's manky. Like I'm not even in favor of um the stuff around like schooling right and obviously i have a really strong view about private education but i really don't think that we should be judging political actors political leaders on what they do with their families or what their parents do do you know what i mean i think that just on a moral level that actually yeah. we should we should keep that out i just think it's really manky politics yeah yeah, most of the time. But then, <laughs> but then, if you're, I suppose, if you're, if you're, um, if you're a Labour Party politician earning quite a lot of money with a really good career, and you're manning the barricades against privilege, injustice, inequality, and it turns out your four kids, um, you're spending fifty grand a year sending your four kids to, um, you know, Saint Matilda's uh, finishing school in Oxfordshire. Yeah, well, um, if your kids then get into the front line uh, of fire, then it's not the press's fault. That's your dad's fault for being a raging hypocrite. Yeah, I. By I accept the point. Yeah, like I can, I can see what you're saying, but whether an MP and I, Labour MPs are feel like the most appropriate example here, but. If a Labour MP is sending their kids to private school at the same time as they're railing against it, whether or not they send their four kids to private school matters jack shit in the grand scheme of the whole system around being able to buy your children privilege. Like, I think that the way that the discussion around like hypocrisy on the left tends to go, um, particularly in the media, um, has become really warped because really what we're talking about is families who can buy their children privilege to such an extent that they will essentially govern the country in 20 years time. People who inherit wealth through their family, like more money than you could ever spend realistically in an entire lifetime. Not, do you know what I mean? Your yeah, yeah, like poor little yeah. brats going to a fancy school. Like I'm not saying it's a good idea, nor am I defending it. I just, I feel really squeamish about the whole um, the arguments around hypocrisy because I think its ultimate conclusion ends in the Jeremy Corbyn lives in a big house type of argument and I just like yeah I, 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 I take just... your point I take your point <clears throat> <laughs> kind of <laughs> <laughs>
Because <laughs> half no, of me's think... going, half of me's saying, you know, I'm a news editor. It's half an hour before the deadline. Um, there's tumbleweed going, going through my 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 uh, news list, and in comes, you know, um, Henry Trumpington Smythe representing Newcastle, who's been flagging off the perfidious stories, and his four kids are are going to. Um, are going to a private school, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, we shouldn't bring the kids into it, but I've got a big hole where a story should be on page five and the deadline's half an hour away. <coughs> that makes me a cynic, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, that's just the reality, I guess. Yeah, how many times have you been told that you living in the West End of Glasgow makes you a... Uh... Don't even fucking start me, right? Don't even <laughs> fucking start me. Cat Boyd's leafy West End mansion. Do you live in the West End of Glasgow? Bought that with her grand inheritance. Blah, blah, blah. That is a West End poster <laughs> behind you. Yeah, this is the, um, it's the Federation of Cuban Women. Yeah, West End. You wouldn't get that in the North East. You wouldn't get that in the North East. Yeah, Saracen Street in Postle Park. What have you got in your wall? <laughs> we talk of little else. That is <laughs> <laughs> pure cheek. That is not right. I know. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but I will, I will indulge at this once. Um, anyway, there's something that you said in your article today that, um, that I thought was really insightful. So it's, so we've been talking about how. You know, if you want to get ahead, um, then you know you're going to go to the party that's most likely to be in power. But actually, in Scotland, it's something a little bit more specific than this because it's not just about um, cozying up to the SNP or getting a job with the SNP or dealing with the SNP as a party. It's a particular faction within the SNP. Mm. Mm. It's the um, the Sturgeon Morell project. Oh God, I knew it was going um, to regret writing that. Oh. Kevin, please don't. It's a cracker of a line. Um, so, uh, preferment in the current party owes more to your personal fealty to the Sturgeon Morell project than to any discernible talent or authentic commitment to an independent Scotland. It explains the presence of some outright roasters on the list of candidates. Mm. What a line. <laughs> I think I... I think uh, I dry, I, yeah, I don't think I'd had my, my sugar intake <laughs> yesterday when I wrote that. I was feeling a bit edgy and obstreperous. Um, right, okay. Uh, so there's a bit of poetic license in there, I freely admit. <laughs> um, and I'm not rowing back from it. Um, look, if you're looking at Richard Walker and Murray Foot, right, there's, there's an example. Not, Richard Walker um, founded the National in 2015 against all expectations and predictions it did well. Um, and he, he was producing papers with like literally a handful of staff. And, uh, you know, over a few years, it actually began to gain sales when newspapers with 10 times as many journalists were, were losing them. So, the, you know, the, he did really well. Um, he was also, um, <clears throat> he'd also been, for a while he was joint editing that with the Sunday Herald, um, which is now sadly no, no longer with us. And so he, he stepped back from the National just for a break and then came back to edit the, the new um, Sunday National. But there was a time when I thought there was an opportunity for the SNP to hire Richard 
as director of communications or, or head of press, whatever it is. I mean, there's dozens of these people, right? There, there, there must be an entire Edinburgh office block full of press advisors that belong to the SNP or the Scottish government because the lines, you know, are so blurred now. Um, but Richard being, you know, a heartfelt nationalist, supportive of the SNP, um, producing a paper from nothing, making it fly with a handful of staff and having been one of the best connected journalists as well as being a very good journalist over many, many years. He should have walked into the SNP. You know, he, you know they should have been crawling over broken glass, say, Richard, we'll, we'll, we'll just create a job for you because we need somebody like you in here. And it didn't, the call didn't come. And and now Richard's standing, you know, to become an MSP. Meanwhile, Murray Foot <clears throat> gets the call to do that job. Murray Foot, who, um, you know, who, whose editorship of the record, uh, but Murray Foot basically put the Daily Record in the front line of the Better Together campaign. Murray Foot is a very good journalist as well. There are questions to be asked if you're within the SNP. Why not? Why not Richard Walker a couple of years ago and why Murray Foot? And Richard, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's a perception that that Richard is is quite close to Alex Salmond because it was it was Alex Salmond who approached Richard and the the Herald Group with the idea of publishing a daily pro-independence newspaper and that there was there would the, this could fly because of the the 45 percent who voted for independence and also the fact that as the 2015 election showed the 45 percent weren't going away and it was you know it was massive record numbers of people want to be members of the SNP so it, it made sense it was a bit you know it made business sense if you publish a newspaper um, to take advantage of that, there's a good chance it will succeed if it's done properly. So whether whether rightly or wrongly, Richard was perceived as, um, as being very close to Alex Salmon. Um, and Murray Foote, uh, via his editorship of the Daily Record, was not. And therefore, and I'm questioning this, right, what was Murray deemed to be more politically suitable, more temperamentally suitable? Um, you know, could could he um, could he be more trusted, given that there is a civil war in raging inside the SNP at the moment, and there truly is the 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 civil war inside the SNP is potentially more problematic and, and has already taken up more hours and more energy um, inside the SNP than, than fighting the Tories, fighting the Labour Party. That's, that's the political battle at the moment, which says all, all you need to know about the weakness of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So yeah, the, the, the SNP can fight their own internal war at the same time as they're fighting... Uh, yeah, 
everyone yeah. opposition party and they're still miles ahead in the polls. Yeah, it's like it's like if Celtic if Celtic decided to play a B team in the in the Premiership, the, there's a good chance, you know, <laughs> I watch what I'm saying here. But you know, that Celtic B team could end up being second or third. <clears throat> so so Celtic are playing their most important games of the season are going to be against their own B team. This is what it's like in Scottish politics at the moment. <clears throat> the SNP, the two sides in the SNP are the two most powerful forces in Scottish politics. The Labour Party and the Conservative Party are nowhere. I mean, George Kervin, your, your guest recently, wrote a piece for the National, was it last week or the week before, um, <clears throat> suggesting that if Alex Salmond were to stand and were to form a new independence party um, at the next election, there's a good chance that that um, the Alex Salmond party would be the main opposition to uh, to Nicola Sturgeon for the SNP. And and this this also um, this was uh, mentioned as well in in the, the website that everybody hates Wings Over Scotland. Uh, I think last year was it not, or was it earlier this year? Um, that if that party under the tutelage of Alex Hammond were to be created, there's a, a very good chance that uh, it would be the official opposition, which is nuts. You know, that's that's um, what does that say about democracy? What does that say about holding power to account? And what and you know what does it say about the Labour Party and the Conservative Party? You know, can they not can they not find a leader? Can they not find you know something creative, something original? Can, you know, can they just get a measure of charisma somewhere to connect with voters in their heartlands? Well, they they appear not to have been able to. I mean, I'm talking about Tory heartlands, right? There aren't Tory heartlands in Scotland, but you know what I mean. Um, but. The Labour Party have said nothing new about anything in the last 10 years. And, and we're in the verge of this, where we've got the government of Scotland and, and the people who are causing it most problems are within the same party. Mm. And, and everyone's getting obsessed with GRA and hate crime. I mean, those, those, those are just, they mean nothing to people in working class or impoverished communities. It's their indulgences, but they're being indulged because there's this sense of boredom within the party. Nobody's, you know, there's no opposition. So they can get away with these kind of conceits, these indulgences that mean nothing to the vast majority of people, but it's a scratch that certain people, a certain sect in the party, you know, feel they need to, it's an itch that, that these people feel they need to scratch. Can I, can I ask about this? Because I have um, sort of read you in some of your columns in recent, in the last couple of years, um, sort of argue that, almost argue as far, and I don't know if this is, is your view, but I, you do see this argument around, and I think you've sometimes come close to articulating a version of this at least, that... Um, there's almost a sense in which the reason that we're not moving towards independence, at least not with any obvious coherent strategy that anyone can understand. I mean, the, the parties 
independent strategies drifting. I'm actually quite pessimistic about it in general, but um, the, the almost the reason that, that we're not making that approach to in, towards independence is because of an obsession with what you've just called sort of, um, you know, these, these marginal issues that, that, that don't uh, appeal to kind of a wide constituency in Scotland. I mean, my feeling about that is that that's misleading as to why we're not approaching independence. I mean, we, we know now how much, say, Nicola Sturgeon cares about the GRA reform. At the, at the slightest sign of opposition, she punted it into the long grass. Like she does every issue that comes up inside the party. I don't think that there is a strong lobby inside the Labour Party on um, sort of um, questions of, I suppose you might call them social liberalism or something like that. And the, the, the hate crime bill might be another one. Like, I don't think that this faction that you're describing is particularly committed to anything. I think, I think that um, they sometimes view these questions as kind of easy wins, right? So we've gone through a period in history where for about the last 30 years, centre-left administrations have made waves on very few issues, except advances in things like equal marriage, um, abortion rights, um, you know, questions of this uh, of this kind in, in the British context, partly because of the European Union, there's been a, a diminishment in kind of anti-immigration politics and anti-immigration sentiment, at least until very recent years. Um, but, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, you hear phrases like the trans lobby, for example. Well, the really powerful lobby inside the Scottish National Party is not for social liberalism. The really powerful lobby inside the Scottish National Party is by bankers and corporate CEOs. That's the powerful lobby. And if there's a lobby that's getting in the way of Scottish independence, surely it's that. Surely it's that the SNP is trying to attach um, independent strategy to powerful institutions that ultimately are, are deeply ambivalent about independence or even hostile. Can I just say, I mean, I... Sorry, carry I, on. I don't think that it's a kind of, I don't disagree with that, David, right? But I think that it's undeniable that in the advanced capitalist economies everywhere, that there has been the use of social liberalism by these lobbies in order to pursue their economic project whilst window dressing on those types of gains. I mean, that would be my... Um, presentation of woke washing, which is my my new sort of buzzword. <laughs> um, but and I but I, and I don't think that the SNP is any exception to that. So the way that I'm trying to think about, like you know, how the hate crime legislation and the debate around the GRE is playing out with this particular project that um, Nicola Sturgeon has with her closest advisors, you know, people like Andrew Wilson. Um, and Angus Robertson. Who are they? Who are they trying to appeal to? So, in all those new labour esque focus groups that, like, I have in my head, like from the thick of it, you know, um, what is the caricature of the individual that they are trying to win to their program? And for me, I can't get the idea of like the kind of the Edinburgh academic lawyer type, right? This is actually who they are trying to win. Like, this is the 
the, their project is to win that part of the Scottish bourgeoisie to independence, to create a cross-class alliance. And what's happening is that in doing that, alongside the, the pressures from the lobby that you outline, is causing a lot of the focus to be on these areas of identity politics, which suits the, um, the real politic of Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP like, leadership. Um, but also, because we live in a current climate of cancel culture, which is real, um, you know, that there's like, if you do um, have a view on like the hate crime stuff is, is a much, is a better example than the GRA because that's yeah, not a lot of that is just right. bad faith, right? And everybody in it like, you know, wants to say something about it and like quite a lot of it is in bad faith. Not all of it, not all of it is in bad faith. Um, but like what I'm saying, I suppose, is like the, the all of these interests, all of these lobbies, like they, they have a relationship with one another. And like that's that's partly why I think the, the SNP is taking this direction, because David, you're, you're totally right. Like, you know, the slightest bit of opposition to something like the GRE and it gets shelved. And this is not, a, it doesn't come from a genuine drive to change society or improve conditions for people it comes from politicking and trying to you know when to create this cross-class alliance on the question of independence that would be my my view I, I think I think each of you are you you yeah I, I'm not this might this might sound um, condescending but each of you are on the right track here and especially the narrative about business, about the SNP seeking to win over business to the extent that business now have a, a much greater influence than, than the, um, the woke brigade. And you're right, I have, I have uh, discussed that in two or three columns. However, let me, let, let me, let me suggest something else. Um, when Alex Hammond was the, the leader of the party, he he was probably the first modern SNP leader to actively reach out to business and to, and to try and convince business that an independent Scotland wasn't a threat to them, that the SNP weren't a threat to them, that they weren't a left-wing party, that they were happy to work with business. <clears throat> and, and Alex Hammond knew the, the current, he knew the vocabulary, he knew the lexicon inside out because he was a former economist with the RBS and his, his wife, was an even more senior economist in RBS. So he's, he's and, and he went to St. Andrews University. Um, so he spoke the language and he knew the people and, and he made some headway. <clears throat> now, I, I, I would suggest that there are made serious business figures in Scotland at the moment who are, who for the last year or so, maybe before, are getting ready for an independent Scotland, and they're, they're putting down their claims, um, similar to the in, in, in the manner of the gold rush. They see they might not agree with it. Um, they, of course, they'll think it's risky, but they can't afford not to take it seriously, and therefore they're putting claims down. Um, because just as they, just as they ran, just as they. They've done well out of the UK and, and they feel that the, the UK 
offers the best security for their business interests. Their attitude is, but if we have to be independent, we need to make sure that we're running, that we've got the same influence in an independent Scotland. Um, I wouldn't underestimate the, the influence of these fringe um, kind of culty groups. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't suggest that Nicola Sturgeon, you know, may be emotionally um, invested in these. I just think that because the SNP have been in power for so long and because at this point in time, it looks like they're set fair for another 10 years or so. So if you want to advance a cause or you want to seek influence for your cause, you, you seek to infiltrate the party of government. Isn't it? It's a waste of time getting involved in the Tories, Labour, Lib Dems, the Greens. <clears throat> and and they have and, and and you're right, I mean there aren't all that many of them, but stealthily they have gained a degree of control of the NEC. Now, a few weeks ago I wrote about the NEC, the, the National Executive Committee of the SNP, because of the way that it stitched up Joanna Cherry. I I spoke to I would have said almost up to ten. SNP people at various levels, and I asked them to, to ask them to tell me how many people were on their own NEC. Two of them were on the NEC. None of them had, none of them knew for definite how many people were on the NEC. Maybe forty, maybe thirty-nine, maybe forty-two. Didn't know. Um, but what what they did know is that over the last few years, there are groups, you know, the three of us, the three of us could basically phone up two of our pals who can broadly agree with, right, let's say, let's say we agree with the principles of those women in that poster behind you, Kat, right, and we want to set up something in the West End representing their interests, and there's 10 of us, and we've got a bit of poppy to throw about, right, and we know one or two people who sponsor us in the party, right, of course there's one or two people. That's you. You're, you probably negotiated the first five steps for getting a seat in the NEC. Whereas, whereas more maybe traditional, um, hesitate to say old-fashioned, but maybe more working class, more traditional politicians who, who want to knock doors, go to meetings, hand out pamphlets, make speeches, gain support, the old way of, you know, rising within a party. They, they've been doing their bit, knocking the doors, getting the getting the, the cold in Port Glasgow and Postle Park. Whereas, whereas these 10 people have set up representing the interests of, I don't know, call it what you will. And hey, Presto, they've got a seat in the NEC and there's 41 of them. Why? Why does, why does any party's national executive committee in a, a, a population of five million need a 41-member national executive committee? You know, anyway, that, that kind of infrastructure is right for, infiltration might be too strong a word, but it is right to be influenced if you're committed, if you, you know, if you, 
tunnel vision, this is what I want. Um, it can be done by stealth. It can be done um, in such a way, you know, because everybody else, everybody's eyes off the ball. There's Brexit, there's the ongoing constitutional question, there's the Alex Salmon trial. So when those big issues happen, you can just slide in there. Um, and and I think, I think that uh, some people are using what you might want to call, what was it you called it, the woke wash. Um, I'm not even sure they're woke. I think a lot of them are fake woke. But they know that it's an issue that will get traction at certain, certain parts of the SNP and it could be fast-tracked into the National Executive Committee of the Government of Scotland continuing. Power seduces. Um, and that's causing a lot of angst within the party. People who are not necessarily anti-transgender, people who don't have a bigoted uh, bone in their body, but they resent, they resent that... Um, this borrowing out of the party, which they're aware of, but they can't put their finger on it. And they're wondering why it's been allowed to happen. And they're wondering why, you know, certain groups seem to have more influence or to have gained more influence in a very short space of time than them <clears throat> and their friends who have been working for the SNP um, man and boy woman and girl for 40 years and they're, they're still kind of they'll be lucky if they get a wee handshake with Nicola at the party conference See uh, if if you're arguing that like uh, you know um, like equality's positions for example can be used as a kind of ladder of influence and so on and as we are discussing you know you, you can abuse that that politics in in that in that way you can use it as a ladder but so can the backlash against it yeah so yeah. alan alan smith for example right he was once seen as kind of <laughs> um you know the the kind of caliph of Woko Haram, right? <laughs> he was a hate figure for, for, for these kinds of arguments inside the SNP. Yeah, and I then want you to edit that out so that I can use it in a column. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, you know, all of a sudden, one day, uh, you know, he, he, something he said was leaked about we need to move away from all this equalities agenda and back towards independence. And hey presto, a couple of days after it was leaked, he then recapitulated that yeah. leak as an article in the National, right? <laughs> so you you have a situation like this is this is the worry of me with this kind of stuff is there are huge structural questions around independence, but um they are being obscured by by the cynical abuse, let's say, of, of, of these questions. And secondarily, and I do think this is sad, it, it's it's destroying the the capacity of the movement or anyone to have a sound, reasoned conversation about the issues engendered by um, you know demands for on on an equalities basis or whatever. I mean. Uh, now, obviously, that that's not just the responsibility of the SNP or the independence movement or whatever. <laughs> Arguments like the GRA reform argument were shredded on social media 
I mean, there was all there was next to nothing but poisonous arguments around that issue and many others, uh, and it's it's become quite a kind of degraded atmosphere. But I just feel that what we've seen in the last few months, in particular, is you know quite a cynical people using it as uh, these issues as launch pads in various directions. I mean, Alan Smith is, a, is about the most unrealistic personality to be the Mr. Independence. You know, the guy who says, you know, well, I care about equalities, but fuck them because I'm big, you know, I'm Mr. Independence and I'm going for Scottish independence and all in this shit get in the way. I mean, it was quite a, quite a turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. And Kevin, the phrase that you could use is you could go for wokest day. <laughs> I think that that's, that's more on brand for you. <laughs> I, I got a phone call from my daughter in Australia a couple of days ago, um, who is, who's like a woke princess. <clears throat> both her and my, my other daughter are both woke princesses. And I love them. I love the fact that they're right into their politics and I at least gave them that. But anytime she phones from Australia, I know that I'm, uh, <laughs> I know I'm in for a kicking um, because, uh, you know, they keep an eye on stuff that I retweet. And so Claire in Australia sent me a link to what she called a more balanced and realistic discussion on all aspects of the of gender reform much more balanced and reasonable and less cynical than you dad i really recommend that you listen to it and i want you to listen to it and i'm going to phone you next week to see if you have so that you know that was me tell <laughs> um and it actually was actually was quite reasonable so i said to claire i'm just i'm not going to write about i'm just not going to write about gre again because like I can't win, and I don't have the language skills for it. I don't have the, I don't know my way around the lexicon, and I get any trouble and stick the size tens into it. And I think I'm being reasonable and ex, and you know inclusive and and diverse, and you know end up fucking myself, you know. <laughs> so I'm leaving it. I'm leaving I mean, it was it. Uh... I can't believe you used the phrase woke princess on our podcast. I think that's probably one of my favorite moments so far. <laughs> but your own daughter, no less, yeah. <laughs> I know. Least, you know. I mean, at least your daughter had the courtesy not to have a go at you on Twitter about it. Oh, God, she scalped me badly. <laughs> um, that's, what, um, that's what happens when you, um, when you try to politicize your daughters in early mm. age. End up getting them into their point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to like so David, you mentioned uh, one of our favourite politicians already, Alan Smith. Can you excuse um, me? I say, I'm going. In, I'm. I'm going to have a cigarette. Can I have a cigarette? Of course. It's not right. Two seconds. There's something important to be said here about the current SNP leadership and their approach to class and the current class composition of 
SNP MSPs. So in the article that George Kerevin wrote recently for the Conter website, he talked about how a quarter of SNP MSPs come from the management consultancy industry, which mm. I think is like quite a, it's a very new labor thing. Then and there's another quarter that's made up of like the classic middle class lawyers, journalists, teachers, medical staff. I mean, and Kevin, you've written a couple of articles about the SNP's attitude towards the towards the working class more generally so I mean what I'm trying to navigate through here and I don't really have answers for it but my instinct tells me that there is a kind of there is a bit of an anti-working class feel to the way that the SNP are approaching politics right now because they are trying to appeal to this um, stereotype of the Edinburgh academic and win them to the SNP's sensible program compared to Boris Johnson, blah, 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 and trying to win people to that. But what that has done is it's created a kind of like anti-working class feeling um, to their politics, to their political approach, and so on and so forth. And I think that that's really clearly typified by the attitude towards the independence movement it's specifically all under one banner mm. there's a kind of like almost like a sneering and distaste for the mass movement of the the, the stuff that's organized by all under one banner because it does i mean it looks quite messy and i feel like there's a sort of sneeringness from the SNP um in a lot of quarters to the kind of the demos and the flags and the oh like it just it looks messy and i think that that is real i think that there is a real kind of idea of anti-working class prejudice and that somehow they are uh, they need to better themselves and when people don't know the language of how to discuss topics around identity politics then these people are shunned and they're called bigots or they're like discarded to the side and they're not useful to the political project however the danger with that and the left's response to that is it can't become a, a kind of anti-intellectual response to it. So I don't think it, I don't think that by just saying, oh, these are all like middle class arseholes that are trying to like drag us into debates about identity politics, fuck them, all we care about is uh, jobs, right? Like I think that, and there are people who are saying that, and there are people who typify that view. I don't want to name names, but there are people who typify that view. What it does is it just creates an anti-intellectualism on the left. And to be frank, like what Scotland doesn't need is an anti-intellectual left. And we've had that for quite some time and it's gotten us nowhere. Like we actually need a way to engage people and like engage working class people on the issues that matter, but also not be afraid to challenge people on things like, um, particularly on imperialism, uh, Trident, NATO, these kind of ideas I think are really important. So I'm trying to like navigate a way through this that's like, well, there are elements of truth on both sides of this. But I mean, someone like um, Chris McElhenney, who I think is a really interesting, uh, a really interesting politician, like when he, and I think he's got interesting things to say and he is working class and, you know, he is of the party's left. But when he talks about things like um, less time should be spent appeasing trans ideology, like to me that just, that just goes back into the echo chamber. Do you know what I mean? And it just yeah. keeps this culture yeah. war perpetuating itself. And actually that's, that's kind of how we've ended up in the situation. That we're in. I think um, <clears throat> to start with, Chris McElhaney, I think 
you, you have to bear in mind that, that he's the leader of um, the SNP group at Inverclyde Council. And Inverclyde, almost from the outset of the coronavirus pandemic, um, was experiencing rates of infection and deaths that were, at one point were running three times the, uh, the national average. This built upon the, the fact that his, his ward, his um, part of Inverclyde <coughs> was ranked as uh, the most deprived area in Scotland. Um, and the, the patterns of, of disadvantage and poverty in Inverclyde are, are, are quite shocking in areas. And I suppose there's a certain amount of frustration that he feels he has to express <clears throat> that, that despite 20 years of continuous left to left of centre government in Scotland, um, uh, devolved government in Scotland, uh, despite 60 odd years of continuous left wing government, including the previous constitutional arrangement, the same places that were afflicted with poverty and deprivation post-war, pre-war, uh, going back to Victorian times, are, are the same places that are experiencing it now. And, and nothing has happened. All the left-wing governments, all the, all the people who say they're, they're socialist, all the, all the, the, the the agendas, the left-wing agendas that various administrations have had in Scotland, we've had in Scotland 60 years, have done nothing. Nothing that they have attempted has worked in these areas. So there is a frustration there. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I would say that, I'm not saying, I wouldn't say that the, the SNP are consciously anti-working class. I feel that there's almost like a suspicion of them, almost a fear of them. The SNP, and they're not alone in this, and this comes with continuous power. They become very controlling because, you know, if you're, if you're 10, 12, 15 years in power, you begin to know, you, you gain a certain expertise in how to use the levers of power, obviously to your advantage. So you can't help but become controlling. And the SNP, are experts at control because they've been the controlling party in 15 years. They know the apparatus of government, they know how to oil it. Um, but I think there's there's a kind of betrayal of, of some of their base instincts, such as the named person scheme, um, minimum alcohol pricing, um, the, the ridiculous, <laughs> the ridiculous campaign to ban the bucky. <laughs> In, in Scotland, in some of our edgier neighbourhoods, um, and and it kind of spoke to me of uh, you know they 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 know they need the working class. They have to have messages that will engage the working class. It was the only four areas that voted um, by a majority for independence in 2014 were largely working class areas. So they need you know they need the working class, but it's almost like you know. Um, you know, I don't want to travel in public. I love, I love the public. <laughs> I don't. I like to travel in public transport. It's just the public. They're just not. You know, they they represent the public. They'll represent 
poor people because you know they need to but it doesn't it doesn't mean that they have to actually get amongst them and understand them you know law um darren mcgarvey aka locky um his book addressed issues like that it's all very well coming into the housing estates with your clipboards and your suits and and with a good heart but all that you prescribe and all and 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 the numbers that you crunch are meaningless unless you actually speak to the people who are affected most by this issue, these issues, and bring them into the decision-making process. And I don't think the SNP are very good at that. Um, and I think that there is a kind of residual primeval, primordial fear of people who speak with authentic working class accents, who don't have a degree, who work in what we used to know as the trades, um, because they maybe don't get the picture, they don't get the, 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 the new messages that we're trying to convey, they don't get modernism. Um, but, but also there's another thing, I've been writing about this for a few years, and I've got, I've got nothing to back it up, um, but, Precisely because the SNP have, I mean, how long have they been in government? 2007, so 13 years, 14 years by Holyrood. They'll win Holyrood, that's 18 years. They'll probably win the next one, it's 22 years. You, know, you can build up a massive pension pot. You can, you can build a long career within the SNP as a professional, you know, as an advisor, various groups of advisors. And, and if you're a minister or you get to become a minister or a junior minister um, or you get a safe seat, <clears throat> you become you become a kind of recognisable figure in the country. You become somebody, not somebody who's just there for a few years. This is part of the ongoing, eternal, endless you know, party of government. And at a very human level, that's very enticing and very seductive. I'd be seduced by it, you know, you know, you, you get married, you have a couple of kids, and, and you want to buy a nice house, and well, I, don't, I'm, I don't want to rock the boat, I'm, I've got a nice income here, I've got influence at open places, people recognise me in the street, I go on to the television sometimes, um, there will be businesses who will hire me because of my network gained over many years in the party of government. Why do I want to threaten that? Now, I'm not saying that they're. I'm not saying that they're secretly against independence. I just think that your enthusiasm for that project would wane. It would be like this is a nice life. We've, we've, we're devolved. We've got we've got sixty percent, fifty-five, sixty percent control of um, uh, the running of the country, which is fifty-five, sixty percent more than we had twenty years ago. Um, because because if if Scotland does become independent, the first thing that will happen after independence is, well, there's going to have to be a general election to elect the government. Now, if the Labour Party ever got its act together and it, it elected a charismatic leader with a suite of um, engaging policies and hard-working uh, politicians, <clears throat> you know, there's a decent chance that, <laughs> that Labour could form the first post-independent Scottish government. And where's your SNP then? Where, where's the, 
you know, suddenly your career in the SNP, which has been golden and, and continually upwards, comes to a juddering halt when you're 10 years short. You're 10 years short of the holiday home in the West Coast or the timeshare in Spain. And it's like, you know, maybe it's like St. Augustine in Catholicism, Lord, change me, but not quite yet. And in, in, in the SNP, it's almost like, yeah, I want independence, but not, but not not quite yet. Not not until I've made my pile, not until I've got the second house, not until I've embellished my CV so shinily that I can walk into any one number of a half a dozen boardrooms. I know that's cynical, but if you've got any kind of knowledge of how humanity works, and, and I'm saying this because I I would be I'd be subject to these forces as well as a human being. You know, it's 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 um it's something to consider and i think there's a lot there's a disproportionate number of people of that <clears throat> mindset that careerism um people who are maybe not on a mission you know politics they, they want to make a difference but they're not going to get their hands dirty too much um and i i think there's a possibility that that's that explains a kind of apparent lack of enthusiasm for um, for finding new routes to press home, well, 58% advantage. It's all very well having 58% support, but, but Boris Johnson just needs to say yet, as he's entitled to do. And he, in fact, <laughs> people keep saying to me, look at that, 58% record support for independence. If I was Boris Johnson, that would make me even more determined to say, no, you're not having your referendum because you might win it. So, so there, where is the plan B, the plan C? Um, and the apparent lack of it suggests there's just, you know, maybe there's no enthusiasm. Maybe it's just, just let's continue in this comfortable vein for a little while it will sort itself out and meanwhile, you know, meanwhile I can get my deposit together for, for, uh, for Sky. <coughs> is that I mean, is I, cynical? Is that really no. cynical? I, I think that there's a lot in that in terms of like both, both uh, Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon have a lot to gain by just, um, by continuing the current situation. Boris Johnson looks tough and he looks committed to the union by saying no. And of course, the Tory vote in Scotland is based entirely on him saying no. I mean, it's there for almost nothing else. If he were to say yes to an independence referendum, Scottish Toryism would die overnight. It would be a catastrophe. Nicholas Sturgeon's not being harmed and the SNP party hierarchy is not being harmed by Tories saying no to them. They've already, the Tories have already said no twice, and it hasn't hurt Nicola Sturgeon's, uh, you know, project. Um, and, you know, on the contrary, if the polls hold up the way they are now, the SNP is going to deliver its, you know, and this is a big if, but the SNP would deliver its, its, its largest majority, you know, could deliver a majority I, government in the next I, election. They're talking about 70-odd. 
yeah, yeah. And then, of course, a lot could happen between now and election. But still, you know, it shows that it's not, Tory intransigence is not undermining um, uh, the, the, the current trajectory, the kind of ultra-gradualist political tendency inside, inside the SNP. And I think it becomes, it becomes a bit like what socialism is for the Labour Party. You know, the, the Labour Party has been preaching the socialist future for over 100 years. But it stops being a realisable project and it sort of becomes an organising principle for the party. Everyone psychologically is on some level. You know, I'm sure, um, uh, what's his name, Keir Starmer, this is kind of the way I think about it. I'm sure he wants Britain to be a more egalitarian place. But for him, as uh, the, the German socialist Eduard Bernstein said, um, the, the journey is everything. You know, the movement is everything. The destination is nothing. You know, it, it becomes more about the process than, than about actually achieving the, the end state mm. um, th that you want. Um, I feel like because you raised a bit of theology there that we should steer <laughs> you towards God. I thought, when did I talk about theology? It was, uh, was it was it St. Paul? St. Augustine. St. Augustine. Yeah, yeah. Who was an ecumenical saint. Because oh, that would be Catholics an ecumenical and, matter, yeah. Catholic, yeah, that would be an ec. Catholics and Protestants both think he was a cat's whiskers. <laughs> um, aye, so uh, at you, before we came on, you were saying that um, someone writes letters into the National complaining about all your God-bothering, and that you'd, <laughs> you, you'd gone back across your articles and found that you'd only mentioned God <laughs> twice. I, do you often think that this is a, the mo one of the most astonishing stories of Scotland in the last 50 or 60 years? At the end of the Second World War, Scotland, I think church attendance in the Kirk in Scotland was among the highest church attendances in Europe. Um, here we are in the early decades of the next century. Scotland is one of the most secular countries one of the most atheistic countries on the earth. Um, what is that? What, what's your, what, what do you think the position of the religious is in Scottish society today? I think, um, <clears throat> I think that some of the most profound, most enlightened ideas governing politics, left-wing politics, especially right now, have their sources in uh, Christian belief, Christian theology. Um, a few weeks ago, I was discussing this in the Herald, and I mentioned uh, John Knox, the, the great Protestant reformer, um, and how yeah, I, think, I think the point I was trying to make was that you can't dismiss, look, it is a secular state. There should be separation of church and state. You don't want a, in the words of Ian Paisley, a priest-ridden banana republic like the Republic of Ireland, right? We don't want that, okay? And I say that as, as a Catholic. Um, but a lot of the ideas that we would call progressive and enlightened have their source in Christian thinking. So yeah, John Knox, I mentioned that as far back as the 16th century, John Knox wanted a 
a school in every parish. He wanted free university education. He wanted education for the poorest in the land. And the fact that 200 odd years later, um, one of the, the, the best biographers of Robert Burns um, was writing in, and I think it was in 1880, um, was, was moved to comment that even in the poorest and the most deprived areas in, in Victorian Scotland, and they, they were poor and deprived indeed, the level of literacy amongst the children in these areas was astonishing, astonishingly high, and it's simply because John Knox's vision of free education for all, basically as a human right, had worked. Um, and and despite all the despite the following attendances, like uh, you have, the Catholic Church has got notionally about seven hundred seven hundred and fifty thousand members, but only maybe two hundred thousand. So more or less a quarter, slightly more than a quarter, actually go to church. But that's still two hundred thousand. And there are still several hundred thousand others who will identify as Catholic or who would admit to being influenced by Catholic thought, Catholic teaching. I, I, would, I would assume that there are similar numbers um, in the Reformed traditions, Church of Scotland, um, Free Church of Scotland, Methodist, Baptist. Um, and and on the left, and it's a continuous dilemma on the left, so I'm, I'm Catholic, Christian, and left-wing. So my, my faith um, informs my politics. I, I wouldn't have been left-wing, or I wouldn't have engaged in left-wing politics um, or, or gravitated towards them if it hadn't been for my faith. But equally, um, my politics, and the people that I've met in politics and secular politics has also helped shape the nature of my faith. So there's, so you know, there's there's, a, there's there are bridges being built all the time. You know, if you look at, it's like the kind of uh, the ribbons in a DNA just curling up around each other, faith and secular politics. And for me, it's worked. But I don't think I'm alone. I think that there are hundreds of thousands of Scots who either attend church or, or who don't, but are still influenced by what they learned as children, what they learned from their parents, what they learned at school. And it has, it has informed politics and politics has informed their faith. And I think that's a good, mature, reasonable balance. And I think that it's, it's at the heart of Scottish society almost unspoken, unwritten, but it's there. Um, and we don't have to be overt about it. We don't have to be, you know, evangelical about it. But it, that, that balance has been an important um, dynamic in Scottish life. And I suppose when I've written about this recently, my fear is that the balance is going, is, is being, um, you know, it's tipping too much in one direction that there are, I mean, I saw today when, it, when, when McElhenney had, had announced that he'd been past fit to stand 
on his Twitter feed. There are amongst the, the messages of support, there were others saying, yeah, but you're a Catholic and that means that you're anti-abortion, therefore we can't have you in government. Um, we've already got, um, we've had, <clears throat> can't remember SNP politician's name who is, um, who's an elder in the Church of Scotland, um, was threatened with deselection because she, um, she voted against the party whip to impose um, uh, abortion on Northern Ireland at the time when the, the, the government was down there. And she said, well, I couldn't do anything else because I'm a Christian and um, I've had, um, she'd suffered several miscarriages and this, this was her voting with her conscience. But she wasn't seeking to impose those views on the party, on the public. It's basically her conscience. It's what she, she believes in spiritually, emotionally. But I see there are there there are people in um, the SNP and and in, in other parties in Holyrood. We're getting to a stage where even just to have that conscience, even though you, you're you're not wanting to alter the status quo, but by having that conscience and having your thoughts formed by that, should debar you from public office because we just don't like the look of your beliefs. We like some beliefs. We'll live with some beliefs, but we're not living with them because it just doesn't look right. It's a bad smell about it. That's all. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not promoting, you know, a Christian state. I'm not promoting anything. Um, I'm not promoting disproportionate Christian influence. All I'm saying is that the balance has been good for Scotland, and there are some people who now want to upset the balance for no good reason. I, I can't see any good reason other than I don't fancy it. Um, I don't trust it. It's not a good look. We'd rather not have it. So we just we'd, we'd rather you just went away, had concealed yourself. We cancelled you. I think that kind of that's roughly my position. It's um, though it's often not thought of as this. It's a peculiarly kind of northern western european issue because i think atheists that you meet for example in britain seem to think that religion is collapsing all over the world and it isn't um i mean you, you're talking there about john knox i mean no not john knox sorry um was it martin luther um but in either case um you know these these were also people who heralded the decline of of religion in northern western europe so basically the, the parts of europe where protestant Protestantism flourished are the most secular parts of the earth today. Um, the only exception is the famous exception in the United States, where Protestantism created, uh, um, you know, colonial and post-colonial societies. One of the most religious on the earth. Um, I mean, I think it ranks just below Iran and, and Pakistan. Um, so people forget that, that, that religion is still this extremely powerful force on a global level, just not really in the small corner of the globe uh, that, that we have. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, in fact, you could, you could probably say that some of the, <clears throat> some of the um, uh, principal motivating factors of Protestantism, um, hard work, 
uh, honest toil um, and uh, looking after your family, um, being, a, being a good citizen, uh, accepting the rule of law, could over a couple of hundred years probably help deliver the secular state, making money, um, uh, corporatism, all rest on these kind of, these original pillars of white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. Work hard, make some money, get ahead, um, own things, uh, be suspicious of people who want something for nothing. <clears throat> um, which were all, all solid enough and helped, helped lift communities at, at the time, 16th, 17th, 18th century. They, they helped lift communities or lift their gaze into something else. But you could also argue that it presaged uh, what we now know as, um, as globalism, corporatism. You know, work hard, don't seek a loan, don't get into debt. Um, except, except when, as you probably know, if uh, um, it's far harder to get a small loan from a bank than a large bank, a large loan. You know, you walk into a bank with a couple of people behind you and say, "I want ten million quid." They'll take you seriously if you say, "I want five grand to get a new motor." <laughs> yeah. I hope you realise, Kevin, that you've. Um... Uh, you've stolen my mantle here as, as the, the, the Presbyterian bigot because you've described Ireland as a, a priest-ridden banana republic and <laughs> Protestantism as the bringer of family values and hard work. <laughs> I mean, that's a real, it's a real plot twist, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I mean, since you bring up the, like, the topic of abortion, right, I, I have a very clear view on that you know i've always been very much in in the pro-choice camp i've written on it extensively but i think over the last few years i have started to be more vocal in terms of like i don't actually think that this is a red line issue like i think we have to have a left that's big enough to encapsulate people who are anti-abortion because they're regardless of whether or not I wish it existed or not, there is a left-wing case for the, the, for the pro-life lobby, but it is dominated by the worst of the fundamentalist right in, in like the whole um, varied uh, Christian organisations. Do you know what I mean? Couldn't, couldn't it's dominated more. by the, the, the kind of right-wing... Yeah, um, and some of their tactics are incredibly questionable. However, it's undeniable that there are still statistics that show that the number one reason that women are, are choosing to have an abortion is because of economic circumstances. Mm. This is where I start to get quite pissed off with the question of conscience, especially when there are politicians who have destroyed communities, destroyed people's livelihoods, contributed to drug deaths, alienation, and poverty on such a massive generational scale are choosing more. to vote with their conscience on a question of abortion when actually it's the economic conditions that they choose to perpetuate 
that is forcing women into a situation where they feel they can't afford to have a child. Well, like I, that's, I, that in itself is an incredibly sick situation to be in. I, I, I agree. Um, it's, it's quite ironic. You're, you kind of find yourself cat moving in one direction, which is kind of like seeking to accommodate um, pro-life views within, um, within the left. And I have kind of I've traveled a little bit in the other direction from being, you know, very pro-life, feeling that the unborn child has as much right to human rights as as um, as those outside the womb, adults, children. They're all human, and it's a, and and I've always kind of promulgated the human rights, like the most the, the most. Um, the most fragile human beings, the ones most need of our protection, are unborn children. Um, rather than rather than the traditional Christian ethos behind that, but but I remember several years ago, um, the uh, some of the more kind of fundamental evangelical uh, people and groups within the Catholic Church and in other churches began this torchlight vigil outside the Queen Elizabeth Hospital to to witness um, against people going in to have an abortion. And, and I thought this was cruel because I, I remember thinking that if only if only they would expend as much energy um, trying to address the causes that, um, that make these women force these women into that choice than they actually do about trying to stop abortions. You know, do, do they really care about the economic circumstances that many of the, 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 that drove many of these women to this position? And in an awful lot of cases, no. You know, if one of these women were to turn around and say, you know what, I'm not going to have the abortion, but with no money, um, my family's thrown me out. Father doesn't want to know. What are you going to do about it? Somebody going to take me into your home tonight? You're going to look after me? Going to help me look after my child or provide economically for it? And they won't. And it's the kind of preachy, it's the preachy aspect of it, and the the, the you know the condemnation and the judgmentalism. And it's a real dilemma for me. It's that it goes back to like, you know, the the my kind of socialism and. Christianity informing each other, but over that one issue of abortion, that's the massive dilemma. On one hand, I, I do believe that it's fully that an unborn child is fully human, but on the other hand, um, I can't even begin to imagine uh, the terrors and the uncertainty and the the poverty, the disadvantage, the cruelty, the violence that might have brought that woman to that position and, and, and who am I, who am I to condemn, judge, make value judgments? You know, I've got no right here at all. But, but that puts me outside of traditional Catholic thinking, but it also, you know, probably puts me outside of traditional leftist thinking. Yeah, I mean, and this is where I think it gets interesting is that we, my, uh, my view on this is that basically just that the left has to be big enough to be able to like accommodate those like different views on those questions um 
I've always been, if I'm being honest, like I've always been slightly suspicious of the aggressively secular left. Um, I mean, I am culturally Catholic, I guess. Like I'd, I've not been to church for a long, long time. But I do think that my politics have probably been informed by my faith at quite an early age. Um, and I do believe in God. And I'm very much on the pro-God left um, and that's partly to do with... Um, is that a thing? And I'm genuine about this. Is, is there a kind of... Just on this story? podcast. <laughs> Just on this podcast. I mean, Actually, that could be... If we get 10 other people who are on the pro-God left, we could get a seat in the NEC. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for it. Um, I mean, the other thing, like, to actually to bring this back to the SNP, like, this is part of my frustration with them, is, like, I think that you're right about this stuff around, like, um, the working class. Like, they're not overtly anti-working class, but there is a suspicion there. But the thing that pisses me off most of all is that there is a, a sense that the working class is stitched up for the SNP and for independence, and there's a real, like, taken for granted. Yeah, which is the trap, of course, of the, the Labour Party. Oh, it's the same with the Catholic vote. I think that there's a sense that um, the SNP think they've got the Catholic vote all stitched up because that was obviously a project of Salmond as well. Like Salmond, you know, act actively courting the Catholic community in Scotland to bring them into the fold, his relationship with uh, like Catholic leaders, you know, and really um, working on those relationships there. Um, but I mean, more generally in terms of my pro-God leftism, um, which I'm sure other people are deeply suspicious of, but like part of it is a bit of a it is a bit of a romantic notion about like when the left was strong. So going back to the twenties and thirties when we had like well organized strong left strong trade unions, and I think about like my own family's interaction with that is that on a day to day basis, as like Irish Catholic communities. Who, like living in an Irish Catholic community, having emigrated from Ireland to Scotland, that it builds a sense of community cohesion. But there is also every single day um, part of a ritual or a practice which asks people to set aside their own individual desires, their own individual wants and fears and what they think is right. They set that aside to achieve a common goal. or Collectivism. To yeah, to worship around a, a common goal. And I think psychologically that's a really important thing. And I think that the left right now suffers from not only its own structural weakness, but a loss of the concept of God, which essentially deflates our own egos. So if we're living in a society where like, you know, I mean, probably 90% of Europe is mentally ill, like, you know, we have huge amounts of alienation, you know, we're all interested in like what our own individual points of view are and pushing them forward. And we don't really have a mechanism in society by which we can say, do you know what? See what Kat thinks today. It's just not important because I'm going to set that aside in order to pursue this common goal with these other people. Like, and I think that we do really, I, th I really lament the loss of religion for being able to serve that purpose which i mean i suppose is it seems like quite a cold um analysis of why religion matters
matters. But I also think that having an aggressively secular left can lead to like really poor policy positions on particular topics and really bad analysis. So the certain sections of the left that basically wouldn't touch the question of Islamophobia with a barge pole for years. Do you know what I mean? Actually saw Islam as a barbaric, as backwards, as like anti-women, like without actually understanding its its purpose for people primarily, but also its part in an anti-imperialist struggle, like particularly for women who, you know, have chosen to reject american cultural norms by you know donning religious dress you know and that is a real thing um, and i think that the secular left or the the aggressively secular left really lost their bearings on this due to what is essentially a prejudice mm. um, or a lack of humility or a lack of understanding and so I was quite lucky in the, you know, my left tradition did take these questions quite seriously and understood the role of particularly Islam in an anti-imperialist setting. Um, there was something else I was going to moan about there, but I can't remember what it is. What do you, David, what do you think? What's your, what's your background? Where are you coming from? I'm, I'm not, I'm not religious at all. In fact, I'm probably one of the most materialist, I mean, philosophically, people I've ever met which isn't by choice. I mean, it, the thing that um, I find strange about that is, I mean, basically I'm an atheist because I, my parents were atheists. In fact, I actually remember believing in God before I found out my parents were atheists. Right, the moment right. they told me, I changed my mind. So I've always got that lingering question of, you know, well, am I more enlightened? Uh, <laughs> or am I just the same way as people with religious parents grew up religious? I grew up with different because you automatically agree with your parents, right? But I, I'm philosophically totally like atheist, but um, I agree with the general. So there's there's a really, I mean, I when I was kind of coming of age politically, there were two really really stupid political tendencies, intellectual tendencies, on what you might have then called the left. Though interestingly, a lot of those people have since moved very far to the right. Um, one was so-called militant atheism, which was one of the most degraded intellectual currents, you know, in, 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 in uh, modern history. Um, and another was Islamophobia. Now, I remember at the time uh, of the huge anti-war demonstrations and all that kind of stuff, before I was really articulate in politics, before I'd come into contact with people who talked to me about politics, like I grew up in AI, there wasn't a lot of like, socialists and stuff around but i did think all that stuff about muslims <clears throat> like when i was a teenager i hated the wars i hate the war in afghanistan and iraq and all that kind of stuff but i did think all that stuff about like yeah but the muslims they are you know quite sexist and homophobic and they've got all these kind of scary ideas and stuff like that so that was a real that was a powerful thing and if it, if you if you were on the left and you didn't think very much about politics you didn't talk to many people about politics it would be your default stance that the muslims though were a bit creepy and you know so on and it took a real effort on the british left one of the things that has been done right in a few things you might say that um, that has been done really well on the left in britain was in stamping that out during the anti-war movement and saying um no you know even even a phenomenon like political islamism which obviously has its ultra-violent side and, you know, and its extreme fringes and so on. 
you have to understand it materially. You have to understand that this is an ideology which has emerged from the destruction that's been done in, in, in Muslim countries and stuff like that. Um, and I also remember an argument being made to me against that kind of secularist liberal ethos in general was our struggle for free speech in Britain emerged first out of the demand for uh, religious expression. So we fought a war in Britain, you know, in the English Civil War was partly, in large part, fought for the rights of dissenting religious groups mm -hmm. to, to speak, to organize, to worship as they, as they saw fit. So it's a completely ahistoric attitude that you have religion on one side as the enemy of freedom, and then atheism on the other is the uh, as the force of good and reason and, and rationalism. There's nothing rational about um, uh, the perspectives of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. That's irrationalism. That's anti-enlightenment. That's darkness. Like if you are willing to to promote wars as Christopher Hitchens did, on the basis that people believe in God, rather than coming to a, a materialist conception, if, if that is your philosophy, a materialist understanding of why 80% of people in the world still believe in God, right? That to me, if you're an atheist, is a fascinating question. It's not one that's just like, oh, aren't people dumb, which is the sort of thing that you hear. Christopher Hitchens' famous claim about why 80% uh, of uh, uh, people believed in God was that they had you know, underdeveloped mammalian brains. <laughs> um, I, I, but it does make you think, well, what are you saying? You're saying that in the Northwest of Europe, our brains are more developed. What, what are you saying? We're more evolved and that's why we're not as religious anymore. Um, it's totally stupid. Ultimately, the militant atheists, sort of, they didn't believe in social science. They didn't believe that things could happen for sociological reasons or anthropological reasons. They only really believed that religious belief could be happening because of physical biology, which is actually an extremely reactionary um, attitude about the world. So, I mean, every so often that guy who plays Mr. Bean turns up on TV and complains about religion, right? He thinks he's Spinoza. There was a time when the left had to have a, make a determined struggle against religious obscurantism and so on. And there probably are still parts of the world where it has to. I mean, Islamists regularly kill trade unionists in Pakistan, right? I'm not saying, I'm talking about my own national context here. Modern liberal atheistic militant atheism is not a progressive creed. Mm. It's a reactionary pro-state, pro-system, pro-oppression uh, creed. And that's what it was used for. It's no mistake, even the people like Richard Dawkins who say that they opposed the Iraq war and so on, it's no mistake that they rose to prominence in the way they did at the time of the so-called war on terror. It was to create a left gloss for a, a campaign of aggression in Muslim countries. That's what it was about. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in general, I mean, I am so glad that we're not in a position where, for example, some of the new um, women Muslim MPs who've been elected at Westminster or someone like Ilan Omar in America is being cross-examined about exactly what they think about uh, women's reproductive rights. Like, whatever I think about um, abortion rights and so on, I'm so glad that we created the basis where that wasn't happening because it's, yeah. it's destructive, just to, to, to return to that particular mm -hmm. point. But in a more general sense, yeah, like, 
I I do want I do worry about the kind of exclusion of religious people from 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 public life because ultimately who does it hurt? You know, it will be minority groups. You know, I, I, the, the the militant atheists claim they are critiquing all religion at once, but ultimately their boots only landed on one or two small religious communities, um, and and that's 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 the way it's gonna that's the way it's always gonna ride in in a country like Britain anyway. I think, um, ironically, there are lessons in that to be learnt by the the traditional powerhouses of Western Christianity, the Catholic Church, the Church of Scotland, the Baptists, um, where up until the up until the seventies, eighties, a, a kind of absolutism reigned, um, and it was. Uh, it was tacked on to fear of hell and it, it kind of preyed on ignorance, which is why this is a point I was making in this article a few weeks ago that one of the main reasons, the driving forces of the Protestant Reformation was to, um, was to have the Bible written in the vernacular. <clears throat> and there was, a, there was a reason why the power structures of Europe at that time allied with the Pope stop that happening because because if the working classes found out the real nature of Jesus um, you know throwing the money changers out the temple the widow's might um, the good Samaritan like socialism they didn't want that to be happening which so we'll keep it in Latin which nobody can the punters can't understand that we do and we can just tell them uh, the bits we want them to hear um, and those ideas continued to inform organized Christianity, mainstream Christianity, until, you know, a, a divinity, a theologian might, um, or a historian might question this, but the, the emerging liberation theology in Latin America in the 70s, which successfully began to... Um, ally uh, feelings of collectivism, uh, socialism, um, and addressing inequality um, in a spiritual Christian, spiritual language Christian context. And this scared the life, scared the life out of the established church um, that that Jesus Christ would be seen as a kind of reforming, a you know, a, a reforming crusader who, who stood with the poor and always stood with the poor, and his message was primarily for the poor, and and against power and against the accumulation of wealth, um, and it and it challenged the, it challenged a lot of power structures in the West who had supported the churches. Not so much because they were particularly spiritual, but because they felt that the church could validate their gathering of wealth, their gathering of power, their invasion, which is what you're seeing. It's why at the moment, Trump is reaching out not only to the Protestant evangelicals, but also to Catholics in America with this very almost medieval black and white interpretation of the, the word of God 
um, and he's bastardized it. And but it's but it's getting traction, and it's all because of this. It's, it's all because of abortion. Like there are there are left wing Catholics in America who don't like Trump. They they they'd really rather not like Trump. But there are priests and ministers saying you have to vote for him because he's anti-abortion. He's pro-life. Well, he's pro-life. So, you know, he wants to ban Muslims coming in. He wants to um, he wants to arm militia groups. He wants to encourage them um, uh, to question the election if he loses it. He wants to target black people or at least say to the police forces, you've nothing to fear from me if, uh, if, a, if a bullet goes astray. <clears throat> Pro-life comes in various forms. It's not just anti-abortion. But at the moment, it's a dilemma for a lot of committed Christians in America. And we don't have that here. We've got a few, we've got a few bam pots here, but we don't have it here because of this balance, quite fine balance between secularism and religion, which I think Scotland has handled quite well. Um, I think there's room on the left that are there is room for both because because as, as, as Kat was saying, and, and my experience too, and the experience of a lot of my friends, our, our left wing thinking was started and then became uh, informed by, by our faith. Because our faith was nothing if it didn't stand against inequality, if it didn't stand for those who were without, because that essentially was the message of the Gospels, which we we, you know, we were told at school and church. Um, and for that, and for being able to, for being able to read that and to interpret it, we have the Protestant Reformation to be thankful for. And our 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 tendency, our instinct towards free education, both free higher education, primary education, secondary education also, as I was saying earlier, came from the Protestant Reformation. And it would just, it would just be a mistake of the left, as, as Kat was saying as well, um, to, <clears throat> you know, to, to seek to alienate that and to um, despise it and, um, and to make it obsolete. Um, <clears throat> I would hesitate to call it bigotry. I just think it's an arrogance like that. I remember that. <laughs> That statement by Hitchens, I remember when I read it, I thought, I think that's possibly the most arrogant thing I've ever heard a human being say. Eighty <laughs> percent of the world are basically mentally disturbed because <laughs> they believe in God. I mean, fucking behave yourself. <laughs> um, so we've been recording for two hours. You're joking. No, I'm not. <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I think it's a good thing. I mean, it shows that we don't really have anything else to do with our time, though, right? <laughs> well, you know we are going to start a group to join the NEC. <laughs> <laughs> On a pro-God leftist platform. Yeah, it's a kind of pro-God, kind of progressive atheist, sort of, you know, ecumenical <laughs> <laughs> platform. <laughs> um, 
Well, uh, yeah, I guess we probably should stop recording now. Um, but thank you very much, Kevin, for uh, for your time and your insights. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it was great. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I hope you enjoyed yourself. Um, so, David, I never know how to end the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so we're telling people to... Uh, money. Yeah, turn off. yeah, money, did you say? Yeah. yeah. We need uh, money. <laughs> uh, yeah, send us, send us all your money and... Uh, like what is it what i'm saying like share subscribe if, if you're watching this on youtube subscribe on youtube if you're listening to it on whatever soundcloud uh, then do subscribe there as well uh, and help this podcast grow okay great <laughs>